Well, welcome everybody to Easter service, and uh, so good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, we've been through a lot of difficult times over the last year. We didn't get to celebrate Easter last year because of the quarantine, and it's so good to start seeing people return. Let me ask you a question as we get started here. Uh, this is April the 4th, so Thursday was April the 1st, April Fool's Day. Did anybody prank you on April Fool's Day? Some of you? Okay. Let me tell you a little funny story, okay? I'm sitting at home on Thursday, and my phone starts blowing up with texts. And these texts are saying, Pastor McGee, I read on the Internet that you're having a special pet blessing service this coming Sunday. And I just want to thank you for doing that. You know, I plan to be there with Scotty. They'd give me a picture of a dog. I guess there's probably 30 of these things that start coming in. One guy has a cat. One guy has an alligator. One guy has a possum he's bringing. He says, thank you so much. We'll be there to get our pet blessed. What a special day and so forth. One guy even said, I'm going to bring my goldfish. Can I put him in the baptistry while you bless everybody's pet? I'm sitting here thinking somebody has pranked me and put on the Internet that we're having a pet blessing service. So on Easter Sunday, I'm going to have all these dogs and cats and lizards and everything. So I start frantically looking through the Internet. I'm on our website. I'm on the Internet, on Facebook, looking. Who put that on there? Well, I couldn't find it. There was nothing there. But all of these phone numbers were, some of them, long distance. They weren't even in the state. I'm sitting here thinking, I recognize none of these numbers. I've got all of these people that may show up Sunday. I have no idea what's happening. Deborah's sitting beside me. She is laughing herself to death. <clears throat> she thinks it's the funniest thing. And she wasn't planning to be here today because our grandchildren, our little two-year-old, is home and we couldn't get her up and get her here this early because we're living about an hour and a half away now. But at any rate, she said, Dave, she said, you've got to promise me. She said, if anybody shows up with a pet, you've got to take a picture and send it to me. <laughs> well, yesterday at John's funeral service, I'm standing back there after the service, and Scott walks up to me. He says, I heard that we're having a pet blessing service. I said, you did it. I said, I know you did it. He said, yeah, I did it. I said, how did you pull this off? I said, how did you get everybody, with all these different phone numbers? He said, he's on a youth pastor forum, and he sent out a message asking them to send me those, those emails or texts. So, yeah, Scott is a prankster. But I tell you, Deb said, this has got to be the best one I've ever seen. I said, yeah, right. So, at any rate. That was cute, and I enjoyed it for about five minutes, and that was it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, let's get serious. Here we are at church on Easter Sunday, and we're here to celebrate what? Resurrection. Yeah, we're here to celebrate the resurrection. What in the world is the big deal about the resurrection, you think? You know, we think to ourselves, Jesus came, he lived, and he preached, and he taught us, and he died on the cross. Why is it so important that he had to be resurrected well in um just a nutshell if the payment that he made to god the father and this is what you need to understand and we've preached this many times jesus was the sacrifice that god provided god said you can't do it on your own so i'm going to provide the sacrifice for you and the sacrifice will be your substitute and what i'll do is pour out all of my wrath and the suffering and the pain and the judgment on that sacrifice or substitute so that if you will put your faith in that, I'll give you eternal life. And so by faith, we come to Christ. We put our faith and trust in the sacrifice, the payment, and we are saved. The Bible says we're born again and forgiven. 
Now, the resurrection is proving to the world that that sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. Because the Bible tells us that on the third day he reached down into the grave and he pulled out and he resurrected his only son. And it was a signal to the world that God's wrath had now been satisfied. And I've told you before, God isn't mad at you anymore. There's not the wrath that is poured out on the un- like the unbelieving world on the believer anymore. Because by putting your faith in Christ, you have redirected God's wrath to his son where it belonged. And this is what grace is all about. This is the message of salvation. When Jesus hung on the cross, right before he took his last breath, he looked up into the heavens and he said, it is finished. It's complete. The payment has been made. And so, yeah, it's exciting because that proved to us. Now, here's the problem, and that is this, that the world, by and large, rejects this reality or this truth. They reject this whole idea of salvation, and they reject the reality of the resurrection. They reject all of this. And so you've got an unbelieving world, and you've got what we call the church, which is the body of believers all over the world. And so I make, when I make reference to the church, I'm not talking about just dogwood. I'm talking about all believers constituting the church. Now let me give you this illustration. My, like I said, my granddaughters are here visiting from Colorado, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I've done things this week I haven't done in years. And um, one of the things that they really enjoy doing is blowing bubbles. So I, you know, grandfather, so I go to Walmart and I get the biggest bubble maker I can find. So we're out there blowing bubbles in the backyard. They're just laughing, having a great old time. And, I, and I, you know, you begin to notice that whenever you blow bubbles, sometimes they come out in twos and they're hooked together. Or they'll just happen to bounce into each other and they stick and they stay there. There was an occasion or two where I saw the bubbles come together and they created a third bubble where they joined. It was really weird. I sat there looking at this. And I thought, well, what a great illustration for what I'm going to be talking about. Now think about this, okay? One of the bubbles represents the unbelieving world that rejects everything there is to, to, to say about Christianity and the Bible and God. They just reject it. The other bubble represents the church. When the world and the church collide or come together, it creates a third bubble sometimes. And what that third bubble has come to be known as over the last few years has been given a name is progressive Christianity. Now here's what it means in a nutshell, and I'll read you something here in a moment that defines it or describes it a little bit better. But in that third bubble where these two worlds come together, on these fringes you've got people who are in the church who are, some are believers, some are not. And they may not be sure about their faith. They may not be sure about the Bible. They've just never been discipled or taught. They're not sure about a lot of things. And so whenever they come in contact with or are uh, approached by somebody that is an unbeliever, they become very confused. And they begin to buy into a lot of teaching, a lot of beliefs, a lot of theology that's just not right. It's not biblical. It's not true. So what has arisen is this, a group of Christians, and I'll use that term because some are and some aren't, we don't know, who have emerged and have been given a title or a name called progressive Christianity. And as you might imagine from the term, they are progressive in their beliefs. 
In other words, they begin to reject a lot of the old teaching of the Bible as being archaic and not true and erroneous and all of those things. With that in mind, let me read you just a moment. I'll take a few minutes to do this. I'll pull this off the Internet. This describes what progressive Christianity is. You may be thinking to yourself, well, why, why does that affect me? some point in your life, and probably sooner than later, one of your children is going to come home and say to you that they're not sure they believe the Bible. They're going to say to you that they think that there may be other ways to heaven other than through Christ. They're going to say things to you that concerning morality, that, you know what, I believe this is acceptable, I believe that I can do this, and it's not really a sin. That's progressive Christianity or progressive thinking. It's entered into the political world, and you are going to be confronted with it more and more, and so you need to be somewhat prepared to know how to handle it. Let me take a few minutes, if you will, and let me read you and discuss with you what exactly it looks like, all right? Now, what I want to do with this today is simply take that bubble, progressive Christianity, and this resurrection story, this faith that we believe, and talk about how these two need to, or how we should approach each other, if you will, or especially the church approaching this, this group of progressive thinkers, this progressive Christianity. Let me begin. It says, progressive Christianity is a growing religious movement that professes to be Christian while seeking to present itself as a modern-day alternative. Now catch that. An alternative to biblical Christianity but without affirming the entire Bible as inerrant or authoritative for Christian living. In other words, yeah, we call ourselves Christians, we believe a lot of the same things, but the Bible is full of errors and it has no authority over my life. That's what they're saying. Progressive Christians perceive biblical Christianity as being fundamentalist, unloving, uncompromising, and too intolerant to, to, to the ever-changing secular culture and moral values of the modern-day world. Now, look at these words, okay? And just let me say up front, I've told you this before, these words, this statement is somewhat true, okay? Fundamentalist is a term that's used to describe anybody that holds at, with any tenacity to the truth of Scripture. You're just labeled as a fundamentalist. Um, unloving, uncompromising, intolerant, yeah, we've been there. As Christians, sometimes we are that. We're unloving and uncompromising and unfeeling and uncaring. And I've told you before, we don't need to be that way, and we shouldn't. As Christians, we, above, more than anybody else, ought to display and exemplify love and tolerance and compassion. But at the same time, to be able to stand firm on the truth of Scripture and what it teaches and what we need to be doing and believing. So we're going to be talking a little bit about that today. It says, so progressive Christianity attempts to present a progressive or more liberal theological view of Christianity by conforming to the world's moral standards and value systems. For example, progressive Christians oppose biblical Christianity's intolerance of homosexuality, uh, the Bible's intolerance of abortion, or the biblical assertion that Jesus Christ, now get this, the biblical assertion that Jesus Christ is exclusively the only way for salvation. 
So while professing to be Christian, progressive Christianity presents distorted theological views, which do not, which do not oppose or offend the world's value system. Instead, progressive Christians seek to merge, embrace, and conform to the moral and unbiblical standards of the world. All right, here we are as Christians. We're being accused of being intolerant, unloving, and unkind because the Bible teaches against certain things. You know, the Bible talks about fornication and adultery and immorality and homosexuality and all these things. We as Christians believe that. Sometimes in our effort to proclaim that or stand on it, we become a little bit intolerant, unkind, and unloving. We do that. But you don't go and create a whole different segment of the church in order to get away from that. And this is what's happening here. And the idea, the biblical assertion that Jesus Christ is exclusively the only way of salvation, what they're saying is this. We've come to the point in our beliefs, they'll tell you, that we don't believe that there's only one way to heaven. And this really is the core foundational problem with the whole movement, okay? It doesn't matter what they think about homosexuality or abortion because everybody believes what they're going to believe. But as far as this movement is concerned, the underlying problem that, that holds up all of their erroneous doctrine is that they have rejected that there's only one way that Jesus is the answer, that his death and resurrection mattered. Because if you come up against a Buddhist or a Muslim or whatever, that person is seeking their own truth and their own reality. And that's what I believe, they'll say. And so how are you going to deal with that? They do not believe in biblical or doctrinal absolutes, but instead they believe that the truth is relative. In other words, it's whatever I want it to be. My truth is as valid as your truth, they'll say. So you believe the Bible? I don't. And we have to accept that and tolerate that. Well, you know what? We, we as Christians tolerate a lot that we don't agree with. And that's to be expected. The world isn't going to just conform to what you believe. But there's a difference in tolerating something and saying that it's okay. And what this segment of Christianity, this progressive segment, is saying, we want you to say it's okay. We want you to agree with us. And that's where we differ. To them, uh, Christ was just a good moral teacher. Their definition of salvation includes the pursuit of moralistic wholeness and uh, a lot of other stuff. You know, this is the reason why you see so many progressives that are concerned about clean air and everything. We Look, who wants to dirty up the air? Who wants to pollute oceans? Nobody does. But for them, it's a, it's a spiritual. It's a spiritual part of their life. And so this is where it's headed to. Let me skip down through here. It says they embrace a mixture of ideologies and spiritual views from the New Age movement, humanism, pantheism, evolution, and every other thing that you can think of as an alternative to theological truth list goes on. Now you get the idea. You understand a little bit better who they are. It's nothing new. It's been around for 2,000 years since Christ was living on this earth. And a lot of it was there before that, but it's nothing new. Now here's the problem, and here's where I want to go with this today. Some of you, some of you may know people who believe that. 
What are you going to do? What are you going to do when your best friend or one of your children come home and tell you, I don't think I believe that Bible anymore. I think I'm gay. I think that it's okay. I think that the Bible teaches that it's okay. And after all, if I want to do that, who's to say that I can't? Because my truth is as valid as yours. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? Some of you sitting in here today are struggling with trying to put all this together. You're struggling with what you really believe. You're, you're struggling with the, you know, the Bible and what it says and what I feel when my best friend falls into this and I want to have compassion, I want to be empathetic and I want to support them and, and love on them. And we tend to compromise the reality of the Scriptures in an effort to be kind and loving and compassionate. Now guys, please hear what I'm saying. Christians, you need to be kind, loving, and compassionate. But at the same time, to stand up for what is true and to be able to say to somebody in all of the love that you can muster up, I love you dearly, but what you're doing is sinful. What you believe is wrong, according to the Scriptures. It's not about what I want, what I think, or what I feel, or what I believe, but according to the Scripture, what you're telling me is untrue. Now, I cannot, I don't have the time to go through all of the things that progressive Christianity believes and dispel each and every one, but what I'm going to go to, especially on Resurrection Sunday, is what I consider to be the heart of the problem, the, the thing that holds it all up, okay, if you will, and that is this idea that there are various and sundry ways to get to heaven. And that Jesus is not exclusively the only way. So I'm going to deal with that one today. What I want to do is to look at the truth of the Bible. Then I want to give you two steps that you can take to help you when you are confronted with somebody that believes this. This following along this progressive way of thinking and they're rejecting the teaching of Scripture. Now, what I'm going to tell you is not a silver bullet, okay? It's not going to give you what you need, but it will help you prepare. You're going to have to study and you're going to have to be ready and you're going to have to know what you believe about certain things before that ever gets there. But here are the two steps. Let me give you the first one here, okay? The first step I want to encourage you to take is this, that you yourself have to be confident in what the Bible says or what the Bible teaches. If I were to ask you, for example, can you prove to me from Scripture that Jesus is the only way? Now, guys, this is important because let me, let me tell you what's going to happen in this world, okay? Now, I'm no prophet, but I can look at what's happening and how the world is heading, and I can just about predict where we're going with some things. What you're going to see in probably the near future, nearer and closer than you think, is that for every one of us who stands up or proclaims in a public forum or even in churches that Jesus is the only way we're going to be labeled with hate speech. And we're going to be seen as somebody that's causing division. Because what the world is moving toward in this progressive mentality that we're in, we're moving toward everything is okay. And it doesn't matter because your reality and your reality 
that's okay. And you can't speak against each other because that's going to create problems and we're all about creating everybody the same. We're all about creating love and tranquility. We're not opposed to that, but we're opposed to compromise. And that seems to be the thing that we have to do as Christians is we're expected to compromise. I want to encourage you that you stand for the truth and you do it in love because the Bible says speak the truth in love. You don't have to beat up a person that verbally or physically, a person that disagrees with you. You convey the truth and God does the rest. That's all. That's all that we can do. But the question is this, are you confident in your own truth? Are you confident with what, with what the Bible teaches? Let me show you in relationship to this question about the exclusivity of Jesus, that he's the only way. I want to take you through some scripture. And if you don't do anything else with someone who, who is, is coming at you with these questions about progressive thinking and progressive theology, that you just simply stand strong on Jesus is the only way. That alone is going to do a lot, just to advance the cause of Christ. Let me read you some verses. In John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, we're going to be looking at. John says this, he says, Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. Because in his teaching, he's he's talking to them and they don't understand. So he's telling them again. He says, let me explain it this way. He says, I'm the gate into the fold. He said, you're not going to get in there outside of me. Now, you can define the fold as heaven, or you can define it as the church, whatever, but it's the group of believers, the bubble that I talked about earlier. How do you get in there? I'm it. I'm the gate. He says, and everybody else that's come before me, or he doesn't say this, but even the ones that have come after me, he said, they're liars. So everybody that claims to know the way or have the way or have the answer, they're not telling you the truth. Because nobody is going to get there outside of me. And what I offer you is life. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the eternal life of, you know, everlasting life when we die. But man, it goes way beyond that. When Jesus offered life and talks about life, he's talking about starting right now. And yeah, life is hard, but how do you get over that? How do you get past it? How do you rise above it? Well, it's going to be your faith. and It's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And he says, Muslims can't offer you that. Buddhists can't offer you that. Atheism can't offer you that. He said, I'm the only one that can give you that. I'm the only one that through my spirit can go inside of your soul and and just reform you, make you new, new birth. He said, I'm the only one. He said, and everybody else, be it 
these progressive thinkers or whoever, he said they're just out to steal and to kill and to destroy. It's amazing to me how that misery loves company. And it seems like everybody that falls into this teaching of progressive theology wants to drag everybody else in to make them feel more confident in what they believe. And that's the key because at the core of their being, they're not real confident in what they believe. But you aren't either. And you need to be. You need to be. John fourteen six. Jesus answered, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, guys, (laughs) look at that verse. I am the way, not a way. I'm the only one. If you want to get to my Father, then you come through the sacrifice that he provided for you. I'm it. There's no other way. He said, I am the one. I'm the truth, and I'm the life. I'm the source of life. And so if you're ever going to get there, you're going to have to come through me. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, understanding that he is the one who died on the cross, understanding that he is the one that was resurrected, that he is the sacrifice, the substitute, and God says, I give to you a free gift, eternal life that begins right now, right now. A couple more, Acts 4, verse 12, look at what it says. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in nobody else, just me. Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Look at that verse. There's only one God. Everybody's trying to get there their own way by their own truth and reality. But he said, look, there's one God. He's in heaven. And I'm the only mediator there is. And see, that's what Jesus did. You and I were condemned. And God the Father sent his son. He died on the cross. And to be the mediator that brought us together and provided for us salvation. And that's who he is. That's something that you and I have to stand on. You see, that's something that you and I have to believe. And if you are waffling on that, then I'm I'm pleading with you to to get this straight in your thinking and to understand this because how are you going to address the questions that your children are going to throw at you someday about why you believe what you do? How are you going to be able to support your theology, your thoughts, your beliefs, Because so many of us are, in fact, uh, and I say this lovingly, sometimes we're just too lazy to take the time to figure it out. And we need to be able to answer that. I want to show you this verse before we move to point number two, okay? Here it is. John 3.18. Great verse. Now now watch this, all right? This is in John 3.18. Whoever believes in him, talking about Jesus, is not condemned. Now, guys, catch that, okay? If you believe in Jesus Christ and put your faith in Him, the Bible says that you will never stand before God the Father to be condemned to hell by God the Father. He won't do it because you have a substitute. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but 
Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now catch this, all right? Let me explain something. You as a human being do not become unsaved. You already are unsaved. You already are lost. That's not something you fall into because you get into some sin. Sin's not the issue. Because the Bible says that you and I were born into this world as sinners. So what is the answer? Well, he tells you right there. He said, if you believe, you'll never stand before God and be condemned. But if you don't believe, you stand condemned already. Why? Because you're a terrible sinner? No. Because you haven't accepted the sacrifice. You haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how to make this any clearer from what the Bible teaches you and me as to what salvation is and why Jesus Christ is so important, the death and the resurrection, and what that means to us. But like I said before, you need to settle this issue in your own mind to where you're confident to present it and to not feel overwhelmed by the opposition. Because I think this is what happens to a lot of us as Christians. These progressive thinkers come at you with questions you just don't have answers for. You haven't spent the time studying it. You don't know. And I want to encourage you that you know the truth, that you present the truth clearly and in a loving manner. And let God do his work. Here's the second point. I'm going to go through it very quickly, okay? And that is that you have to be confident in the power of the truth. You have to be confident in the power of the truth. And here's what happens with a lot of us. We're confronted by people who disagree with us. Let's just take our children. You know, they get up into high school and college age years and they start asking questions and they are taught things. They hear things from their friends and they come home and they say, I'm declaring that I just don't believe that anymore. Okay, so what are you going to do? You, you frantically try to change their thinking. Don't say that. You know, and you need to understand that if this is what somebody is thinking and believing, you are not going to argue it out of them. You're not going to punish them enough to get it out of them. The only answer is that you've got to believe and understand the power of the Word of God to change them. Now look at this verse. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... Because it, that's the gospel message, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then the Gentile. Now the gospel, within the gospel, is the power that when a person hears the gospel that Jesus died and rose again for them, the Spirit of God, through this gospel truth, works on them and brings them to faith. It's like God opens their understanding and helps them to receive it. There's power in it. You see, Paul said this. He said, look, I'm not ashamed of that. Here's the problem with us as Christians. You know, we're in this big bubble over here, and we're, you know, the world's over here, and we collide our worlds together at times. We find ourselves being questioned and so forth. And we tend to be ashamed of the gospel. 
I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to say that. Oh, gosh, what if, you know, what if I say that, you know, tell them that there's only one way and they don't believe it, then they're going to be offended. They're going to be, and it's just going to cause trouble. And we're going to be mad at each other. And, you know, Jesus told the disciples one time, he said, I, I didn't come to bring peace. He said, I came to bring division. That's not my intent. But he said, I'll turn fathers against their children and children against their fathers. Why? What are you doing? What do you mean? Because the message causes division. God's trying to pull people to himself and reunite families with the truth of the gospel and its power. But the very message itself is divisive. When I tell a Muslim that, you know what, there's only one way, man, and it, that's, not, that's not it. Then they become offended. The offense is just a natural outcome. It's just human nature. So we back off. We become ashamed. We're not going to do that. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. He said, because I know that that person can never be saved without the gospel message. And it's the gospel message that has the power to absolutely change them. So I'll preach it. And he did. People got mad at him. People stoned him. People threw, you know, everything they could at him to try to shut him up, and he wouldn't. They finally martyred about all of those apostles in the first century and <clears throat> the worst thing they could have done because <clears throat> the church just took off after that. Too many silent Christians today. Too many of us who are ashamed to preach the gospel or just proclaim the gospel. And you and I need to understand that all of these people, let's go back to our children because that seems to be the one that we care most about. My children believe a half gospel that it's not just Jesus, but maybe some Jesus and something else, then that gospel has no power to save them. Because you see, in the gospel is the very message of exclusivity. Because what I'm having to believe, what God is asking me to believe, Jesus is the only way to the exclusion of everything else. And as soon as you add in some other bit of something, it dilutes it to where there's no power in it. And it cannot save. The truth has the power to save. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to know how to combat every thought of this progressive segment of our society. But you're the basics. And you simply stand on this one. And you can figure out the rest. But there's only one way. That's the reason that the resurrection is so important. Because God said to the world, that's the way. Now you may be sitting here this morning, and you may be thinking to yourself, you know what, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know what I believe. Let me tell you the gospel message very clearly. The Bible says that you and I are sinners. We were born that way. We have proven that by the way we live our lives. 
And we'll always struggle with sin until the day that we die. But what God offers to you and me is life. Life that begins now and changes our world here as well as prepares the next one for us to come. God said, I know you can't do it yourself because you're not good enough. Do you realize that? Do you know what God requires to get into heaven? Perfection. Clearly stated in the Bible. Nothing sinful will enter into heaven. Mm, Boy, that lets me out. But boy, that's where the grace message comes in. That God loved you so much that he sent his son. He took your shame, your suffering, your penalty, and he died. You know, Ron and I were talking this morning at breakfast. He was talking about just recently what was the passion that you, he, re, he saw again that movie, the, the Passion, that was years back, where they just shows very vividly the beating that Christ took. And the reality of that, that, that would have been you. If you die without Christ, that will be you. But then the beauty of it, see. And this is what the world doesn't understand, that God loves you. And that God provided a way. And so we come to Christ, the reality of that one, and we understand that he died and we believe it. We don't know all the ramifications of that. We don't understand all the questions. There's not all the answers. But we know this, that in my heart I believe it. I don't really know why. Well, I do. It's the Spirit of God. And you're believing it and you're trusting in it. And God saves your soul. You're here this morning. Why don't you trust Him? Just bow your head with me right now. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And this prayer doesn't save you unless it comes from your heart. But let's bow our heads together. Let me just pray with you. If you're here and you don't know for sure that if you were to die, you'd spend eternity in heaven with God to understand that you're forgiven, then tell God what's in your heart. I will let you in on a secret. You're not informing God of something that he doesn't already know, but you're just verbalizing what's in your heart. This helps you more than anything else. But the prayer goes something like this. God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have shamed you. But I believe what the Bible says. That Jesus died on the cross for me. And that you raised him from the dead. I'm trusting him. I'm trusting him to be my savior. My substitute. Thank you, Father, for loving me that much. My friend, based on the authority of God's Word, God says you're saved. Not me. God does. God says you're forgiven. God says you're a new creature. And it's only the beginning because it only gets better. And one day you'll stand in the presence of God with all the rest of us and we will fall to our knees and praise Him and thank Him for all that He's done for us. Wow. I can only imagine. That's salvation. 
and the people in this world who are trying to dispel that message in order to support their perversions and their ideas and their thoughts. You can love them and have compassion on them like we should, but just stand for the truth. Just stand up and proclaim what the Bible says. At this time, what I want to do is I want to have the the men come forward. We're going to go right into communion. While they're coming forward, I want to tell you what this is all about. Communion is something that we do periodically at church. We, The last night that Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples, he went through this ceremony with them and told us, as often as you do this, you do this to remember me. It's the bread and the juice. and They're going to pass it out to you and take the bread first, and we'll all partake together. So just wait until they've given it to you, and then we'll all partake together. But the bread represented his body. He told the disciples, he said, Listen, you take and eat this because this is my body that is going to be broken for you. And so this is a way of remembering. And as we do this today, this is what I want you to do. I want you to focus on that. I want you to thank God right here where you sit. Just spend this time praising and thanking God for the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and me. Don't be thinking about lunch or what you're going to do. Just spend this time worshiping. Just worship God there quietly as these men pass it out.
the Bible says that uh, that night in the upper room, he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it to the disciples. He said, and you take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. He said, and as often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. As we partake today, we are remembering the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior. Let's take together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, that he took our pain, our suffering, that, Father, he died for us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know that or has not put their faith in you, that they would do that this morning. Father, we thank you for that sacrifice in Jesus' name. As the men present the wine or the juices in this case, he took the cup that night also, and he said, this is wine, but he said, this is the, my blood. This is my blood of the new covenant. And he told them to take it and drink it and to do that in remembrance of me. The blood. You know why that's so important? Because without the blood, there's no forgiveness. The sacrifices of the Old Testament had to shed their blood upon the altar. Jesus was the sacrifice Jesus' blood had to be spilled. People accuse Christianity of being an archaic religion because it is like human, it's all about, all about human sacrifice. That's true. We do not deny that. That is the power. The blood has the power to save because it is the key. When Jesus died, he shed his blood. As you sit there this morning taking that holding that cup. Just take these next few minutes and thank him. Thank God for the gift of salvation and forgiveness through the blood of Christ.
that night in the upper room, they took the cup and they took it together. This was the blood of Christ. It was, it was symbolic, okay, of the blood. They were by faith taking it and proclaiming what they believed. As we take this today, we are proclaiming what we believe about the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name we take it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood that was spilled for us. Father, I know that it sounds barbaric to some people, but they have to see beyond that image into the image of a, of a suffering Savior. Father, as we partake together, that is what we are recognizing. That's what we are proclaiming. By faith we do this until you return. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.